Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, the text that you just heard Chris read. We're going to be walking through it today. In Luke 19.10, Jesus declared the central calling of his life, the reason that he entered the world. There are many such purpose statements that Jesus gives or that are given about Jesus. All of them tend toward the same thing. But in Luke 19.10, he said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. He's talking about human beings who have been lost through sin and who are in danger of being eternally lost through judgment and condemnation. Jesus came to save people from that. He then committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. He committed to us the gospel ministry as at the end of this beautiful gospel of Mark in Mark 16, 15 and 16, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. To rescue individuals so that they will be saved and not condemned, that's the central work that we're left here on earth to do as a church and as individuals. And it's for this reason that I zeroed in a number of weeks ago as we moved through the Gospel of Mark on this marvelous statement, Mark 1.17, Jesus said, to his early disciples, come follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And so that's been on our minds. And now as we come to Mark 4, we have a tremendous opportunity to learn more about that, what it means to be fishers of men. That's just one metaphor. The one today is agricultural. This is what we're left in the world to do. But now the question comes to us, what should we expect as we do this work? What should we expect as we preach the gospel? That's a vital question. It may seem strange to us as we look around the world that we live in, the 21st century world, that the gospel hasn't done better over 20 centuries. That it seems like percentage-wise the church of Jesus Christ is so small. The overwhelming majority of the people of this world do not believe in in Christ. Very, very many of them have never even heard about Him. How do we understand that? In 1993, Christy and I took our two children at that time, Nathaniel and Jenny, with us as missionaries to the country of Japan. And we flew into, into Japan, and we spent our first night in the Baptist mission home in Tokyo. And then we were there for a couple of days in that vast city, 10% of the Japanese population roughly lives in the city of Tokyo. It's a massive city. And we got a sense of the scope of that great city. There were over 12 million people living in Tokyo in 1993, uh, closer to 14 million now. However, only 0.2% of the Japanese population are evangelical Christians. 0.2%. That's two out of a thousand. And Christianity has been in Japan since the year 1549. That's almost five centuries, 500 years, 0.2%. If Jesus really is the Son of God, then why are so few people in Japan Christians? And then worldwide, the generous estimate of people who do this kind of statistical work is that evangelical Christians make up about 8% of the world's population. Eight out of 100. 
So when we come to the task of evangelism, we're faced with the crushing fact that so few people that we share with respond favorably to the gospel. So as we move ahead in a commitment to evangelism, our expectation is vital. If we assume that almost everyone who hears the true gospel will respond favorably, should respond favorably, and then they don't, we see a scanty response, we might be strongly tempted to question our whole approach, including the message itself. We might want to change the message and methodology to make it more market-friendly. Many so-called Christian leaders are constantly in a pattern, a feedback loop pattern of this kind of evaluation to tailor the message and the methods to make it more popular, uh, best results. And the results often of that feedback loop processing is a synthetic seed coming out of the gospel of their imaginations, truly a false gospel. And all because they expected that the gospel of the kingdom of Christ, if it is the true one, would result in a vastly successful response in the human heart. Today's text, the parable of the soils, has everything needed to destroy that false expectation. Three of the four soils described here produced literally no fruit ultimately for the kingdom. Three of the four result in no harvest, no crop, no fruit of eternal consequence. It doesn't mean the sower of the seed did a bad job or that there's something wrong with the seed. This is Jesus' expectation for the spread of the gospel, a realistic appraisal of what we can expect, what will happen as we evangelize until he returns. So let's walk through it. Let's begin by talking about the parables. This, in Mark's gospel, this is where we begin Mark's look at some of Jesus' teaching ministry. You get far more in the other gospels than you do in Mark. Mark's more of an action gospel. But this is the chapter where you get a good extended look at some of Jesus' teachings. In the context of the parables themselves, as a manner of teaching, is the apparently poor response of the gospel to the gospel even then. From the beginning, the response was less than we might have expected. Of course, there are huge crowds. I mean, you get it right away. Look at verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out in the lake. Well, all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. But the more you look closely and you read other key passages of Scripture, analyzing what's really going on in the hearts of those people, most of them weren't there for the teachings. Actually, had very little interest in the teachings. They were near Jesus for the good stuff, that being the healings, the exorcisms, the miracles. An occasional feeding is nice. And a pretty dramatic show. I mean, there's never been anyone like Jesus. Not to mention the feeling of desperation that comes on individuals who are hurting, physically hurting. And they're in pain every day. Or they're incapable of working because they're paralyzed or they're blind or something like that. Or their loved ones, their caregivers want that problem solved. And if somebody can address it, that's all they care about. So the question was pressing. If Jesus really is the Son of God, then why are so few people really believing in Him? 
the insiders who are in the house that Jesus at the end of Mark 3 says, here is my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Just a very, very small group of people. So the answer to that question, why are so few people responding spiritually to the actual teachings Jesus was giving, this parable comes in and the parables in general. So look at verse 2. It says, he taught them many things by parables. Later in this chapter, it's going to say, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. This was his teaching methodology. What is a parable? Well, the word comes from the Greek, parabole, which means to lay alongside. This alongside this. And so the concept is to teach something about the invisible spiritual kingdom of God by something that we do know in the physical realm of this world. And to lay the physical thing we are familiar with alongside the spiritual thing being illustrated so we can understand the invisible spiritual kingdom of God. That's what parables are. It's a laying alongside. So you're taking something practical, something physical, something you do understand, and then from that you can understand something about the invisible kingdom of God. That's a parable. So basically, fundamentally, it's this is like that. So you can compare the two and you can get some aspect of the kingdom of God. Now, parables both conceal and reveal. We're going to talk about that more later in this very chapter in Mark 4. They both conceal and reveal. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is surrounded by enemies who oppose him, who actually hate him. Not everyone hated him, not at all. But he has, they, he has some key leaders the, the scribes and Pharisees who come down from Jerusalem who are evaluating his miracles, they don't deny in any way he's doing amazing miracles. Or they, they don't deny that. How could you? But they believe that the explanation, the source of his supernatural power is Satan himself. As we talked about in the last couple of sermons. So Jesus begins now in Mark 4 to act in judgment in judgment against those of his own generation for that evaluation. And so the parables are clearly portrayed as a work of judgment from God on the hearers. And the judgment is the concealing aspect of the parable. He's hiding things from them by teaching them only in parables. Look at it in verse 10 through 12. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. That's the language of judgment. Jesus was dividing this vast crowd into two categories. Outsiders and insiders. Both got the parables, but the outsiders only got the parables. The insiders also got Jesus' personal, clear explanation of the parables so that you can see what's laid alongside what. Now, this was to fulfill this work of judgment that God had spoken about centuries before through the prophet Isaiah, who was sent again to a stubborn and obstinate people who are not going to listen to him. And Isaiah in Isaiah 6 wants to know how long does he have to do this ministry? And you have these same words, which are quoted many times in the New Testament. Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make this heart, people's heart callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and turn with their hearts. And I would heal them. It's a work of judgment. 
And so by giving parables with no explanation, it fed the attitude of the hardness of heart of his opponents who thought he was crazy and demon-possessed. So you actually do see this response to his teaching. Like in the parable of the good shepherd in John 10. It's a beautiful parable with lots of details. Unexplained, just good shepherd. And the sheep coming in and out and finding pasture and all this. So he does all this in John 10. And at these words, John 10, 19 and 20, the Jews were again divided. And many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? It feeds that perception. Try this out. Go to some person this week. Memorize the little parable here. Say, I want to tell you a story. Somebody at work, all right? Non-Christian person at work. A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the bird, you know, all that, the whole thing. And then finish. And then say something like, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to look like, like you're out of your mind. What's wrong with you? That's what was happening back then. But then the insiders, they get the explanation. They get the, the details of the parables explained from Jesus' own perfect lips. And then the parable inverts and becomes an incredible teaching tool that makes certain aspects of the kingdom incredibly clear and memorable. That's the power of the parables. Now, this one today and next week, God willing, is the most important parable, I believe, of them all. It's a a gateway parable. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? So in other words, it seems like he's saying, I don't know this exactly what he's saying, but it seems like he's saying, if you get this one, I mean, you really understand it, you'll understand all the parables. It's foundational because it has to do with hearing God's word and understanding it in your heart. And this is foundational, dear friends, to our salvation, to God's strategy for saving our souls from our sins, that we would be justified by faith and not by works so that no one can boast. So foundational to that is hearing with faith and believing to the forgiveness of your sins. As Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing the word, and, and, the, and the word comes through the word of Christ. The message is heard through the word of Christ. So, as we will see, this parable has to do with the key moment in our entire lives, the moment of hearing the word of God. Do we hear it with faith, with a soft, yielded heart, submissive, so that we bear fruit for the kingdom, or do we ultimately reject the word we hear and bear no fruit for the kingdom? Our eternity depends on that question. If we don't understand this parable, how will we understand any parable? All right, so let's walk through the details of the parable, the parable of the soils. Look at verses 3 through 8. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 
30, 60, or even 100 times. Well, first of all, just the agricultural nature of this parable would have been very familiar to them. Many of Jesus' parables were agricultural. Uh, Jesus' first century hearers were perhaps many of them farmers. And if they weren't, they, were, they knew farmers. They were close to the soil. Uh, the promised land itself was called the land flowing with milk and honey, rich in agricultural blessings. And it could be that you could even see some farmers scattering some seed while Jesus was telling the parable, often in a distance. The focus of this parable, the key with parables, is there's generally a central idea. It's not that details aren't important, they are, but there's usually a main central idea to the parable. So the focus here is the soils, really, and ultimately nothing else. The parable does begin with the sower. It literally says, the sower went out to sow. But then nothing else is said about the sower or his technique, whether he uses the overhand technique or the underhand technique. It doesn't say anything. He's not a wise sower, a faithful sower, a hardworking sower, and anything sower. He's a sower. And also nothing is said about the seed. There is only one seed, and we learn it's the Word of God. And in this parable, nothing said about it either. The focus is on the soils and the outcomes. Soils and the outcomes. Now, the soils focus into two, uh, the, the, the soils fall into two categories, or four categories, or six categories. Depends who you read, what commentator you read. This is the joy I get of reading commentaries. So, is it, what is it? Two? Is it four? Is it six? All right, first of all, simply it is two bad soil and good soil. So that's the easiest categorization of the soils. Is it bad soil or good soil? And it depends, the whole thing depends on is there eternal outcome, harvest. If there is, it was good soil. If there isn't, it's bad soil. So it's a simple, clear way of understanding the two categories. Or you can break it into four categories, which is the way we usually would read it. So you've got the hardened path, you've got the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and then the good soil. So that would be uh, breaking up into four categories. Six categories would be to take the last, the good soil, and break it into three categories of, of its yield, 30, 60, 100. So three categories of bad soil and three categories of good soil. All of that I think is helpful. But especially the, the basic breakup of bad soil versus good soil. All right, briefly let's just walk through certain details. Soil number one is the hardened path. Farmland in Galilee was bordered by paths and roads that enabled people to travel by the farms without trampling on the, on the crops. So the paths and roads would have been hardened by constant travel, all the more since the climate was hot and arid. So the road would have been hard as concrete. Any seed that fell on that hardened path would stay on the surface, right on the top. And within a short amount of time, Jesus said, the birds are going to come eat it up. It's gone like it was never scattered there, like it never happened. Or as Luke 8, 5 says, the seeds would be trampled underfoot, like by horses or cattle or, or carts or people just walking, trampled. In any case, no impact whatsoever. Soil number two is the rocky soil. Now, I grew up in New England, and everywhere you look as you get in the rural areas, you see stone walls. 
everywhere, stone walls. Why? Because the farms grow stones. Every year they grow them. It's true, they come up with the subterranean pressures and they come up and, and before the farmer can do anything, he's got to clear his, his farmland of these mini boulders that come up. And so they thought they would creatively make them in defenses. Good idea. They just come up. But Jesus isn't, isn't speaking about that because the ancient Near Eastern farmers would have had the same problem and they would have cleared their land of it. However much work it took, they would have gotten rid of it. That is not the problem. The problem is a subterranean layer of limestone, let's say, really hardened, like concrete, somewhere similar to the, that path, only it's a little bit down below, and a very thin layer of topsoil, very thin. But that subterranean layer of rock is not going anywhere, and so the, the seed can't probe down and find water or nutrients. So it springs up quickly because it, it just it needs the sunlight and all. It's going up fast. But when the sun comes up, they, they're scorched and they wither and die because they have no root. Because the rock below doesn't permit it. Soil number three is the thorny soil. Unlike the last two soils, clearly this soil is capable of supporting a, a crop. Everything's there. The nutrients are there. The water is there. The, the conditions for growing uh, are, are good. But the problem is that there are other plants there, weeds that are there competing with the good seed for the nutrients and the water and the sunlight. And because the weeds grow up faster than the, than the good plants, they block the sunlight, steal all the nutrients, and they win. And so that good, the, the good seed can't produce any uh, crops. Now, the, the, the plant that he talks about here is the acantha plant. It's, uh, it's thorns, the same thorns that the Roman soldiers would viciously weave into a crown of thorns for Jesus to wear when they were mocking him. Uh, it reminds us also of the cursing of the ground uh, that God gave Adam back in Genesis 3, 17 and 18. He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you. So that's the thorny soil. And then the good soil, uh, soil number four, there's a powerful contrast between this soil and the others in that the soil is called good. The seeds that fall on this good soil produce a staggering harvest. Jesus says 30, 60, even 100 times what was sown. Now this is remarkable. Research into the ancient Near Eastern expectations of a, a harvest, at best, eight, eight, eight folds. That would be good. If you could get eight fold out of it, maybe five was normal. Jesus is talking about a stunning level of fruitfulness in every case. Stunning level, 30 times what was sown. Others even double that 60 times. Or even 100 unheard of. Staggering levels of fruitfulness. All right, so those are the details. What does it mean? <laughs> what's, what's the meaning? Well, Jesus begins with the call to hear. Look at verse 9. Then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The central issue here is how we listen to God's word. He begins the whole parable with this call. Look at verse 3. How does the whole thing start? Listen. Call to listen. This is Almighty God through His Son calling you to listen to Him. Listen. Sower went out to sow. 
And then he says, if you have ears, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you have ears, use them. Jesus is already judging these people for their hard hearts by stopping the parable with no explanation. He's furthering their unbelieving assumptions that he's insane. But he's calling on them to listen. They, they have ears, but do they hear? Now, I believe that one of the most helpful insights I've ever had concerning Jesus' ministry and how we should think about it is the statement, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is our spiritual physician. So that means his physical healings become living parables for the spiritual healing that we need. He healed literal, physical blind people so they could physically see. But what about the spiritual blindness that plagues all of us? He heals literal deaf people so they can physically hear, but there is a spiritual deafness that he really has to address for us to be saved. Psalm 115 speaks about how Israel's idols represented them spiritually. Psalm 115, 4 through 8, it says, Their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So it is with all unbelievers. Yes, they have physical ears, they have physical eyes, but they cannot see or hear spiritually. Jesus has a special ministry with his own. There's a supernatural work going on in the insiders. He deals differently with his own sheep. John 10, he says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus gives them a private hearing. Along with that is the secret working of the Spirit in them to open up their spiritual ears and to hear it. So look at verse 10 and 11. When he's alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Now the word secret is also sometimes translated mystery. In the New Testament, this is something that can only be understood if God, by his spirit, reveals it to you. That's what a New Testament mystery is. So the mystery of the kingdom of God has been given to you. That's a tremendous privilege. The outsiders don't get that. Verse 11 and 12. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. So the purpose of the explanation is perception. It's understanding. It's insight. It's truth. All right, so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain the parable briefly. I don't know if you noticed the sermon title uh, today. So it's part one. So part two, we're going to go through these same explanations more in depth, with more application, with more warnings to us as hearers. We're going to do that work next week. I don't have to do any of the introductory stuff on what parables are and why he's using them. We'll just go right to the spiritual applications of these soils, which is very beneficial. So, but just for the time we have left today, I just want to go through it quickly, uh, the explanation Jesus gives for these soils. Look at verses 14 through 20. The farmer 
sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Thirty, sixty, even a hundred times what was sown. Jesus' personal, private, powerful explanation. But notice, it's written down in the pages of the most famous book on earth. Does that make us all insiders now? Could. You could be an insider now if you'll listen with the ears of your heart. So we're invited in. The secret's out, dear friends. The explanation, it's available. But you still have to have the working of the Spirit in your heart to get it, even with the explanation, to see it. All right, so it begins with the farmer, the sower, and he sows the word. Now, the first and primary sower in another parable is Jesus Christ himself. In the parable of the, of the weeds and the wheat in, in Matthew 13, he identifies himself as the sower. The one who sowed the seed is the son of man. But here, no such thing. Jesus certainly began by preaching the gospel, but he also commissioned the church. And the church goes out and preaches the word everywhere. After he ascended to heaven, Mark 16, 19, and 20, it says, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up to heaven and sat at the right hand of God, Mark 16, 20. Then the disciples went out and preached the word everywhere. So they're the sowers there. And then as their spiritual descendants, we're the sowers. Anyone who shares the word of God, anyone who evangelizes, brings up kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, shares the gospel with a lost co-worker, we're the sowers. And the seed is the word. Now, what, what word? Again, it's a big book, lots of words. <laughs> what, what word? Well, primarily, I think it's safe to see the gospel, the, the milk, the central teachings of the Bible, the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So Christ and Him crucified, that's the centerpiece of the Word, the seed. Uh, also, 1 Corinthians 15, um, verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So that's the seed that is the Word. And I think that's fine. The basic message of Christ, the incarnate Son of God, fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life, did amazing miracles, taught parables like this, but especially died on the cross as a substitute for our sins and was physically raised from the dead on the third day, ascends to heaven, and if you repent and believe in him, all your sins will be forgiven. That's the seed, the word, the gospel. However, Beyond that, Jesus doesn't say it's the gospel. He says it's the word. So I think it's anything. Any truth that's taught in the Bible, for all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. So I actually think that this parable is permanently useful to all Christians, even this very moment, this very morning, 
Whenever you have the Word taught to you or the Word comes in, what do you do with it? I think it's helpful. All right, so that's the sower and the seed. What are the soil? The soil represents human hearts in their various conditions. Human hearts in their various conditions. We know this from Matthew 13, 19. It says, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, Satan, comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. That's the seed sown along the path. So the path equals the heart. Or on the other end of the spectrum, in Luke eight fifteen, it says the seed on the good soil stands for those with, listen to this, a noble and good heart. Wow, doesn't that sound good? A noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. So again, the good soil represents a good heart. So all of the soils represent human hearts in their various conditions. All right, so soil number one, the hardened response. Look at verse 15. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and snatches away the word that was sown in them. Now Matthew's gospel tells us they don't understand the word. They just don't understand it. It makes no sense to them. They have no response at all. This, my friends, is the overwhelming response of those when they first hear the gospel. They don't get it, doesn't make any sense, makes no impact, and it's gone moments later, like it never happened. Ephesians 2 says of those people that they are dead in their transgressions and sins even while they live as citizens or subjects of Satan's dark kingdom. And as soon as they hear the word, Satan actively, creatively, and skillfully through his demons takes away the impact of that encounter. So they do not fear God's judgments. They don't rejoice in God's promises. They don't marvel at Christ's work. They don't take to heart any of God's commandments. It's gone like that moment just never happened. And Satan's activity here is so clever and powerful. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says the God of this age has blinded their minds so they don't understand. He's active, working, doing this all the time. And so the sinner mocks the word or deconstructs the word or counters the word or forgets the word entirely. Ultimately, that's what they do. More on this next time. Soil number two, the shallow emotional, temporary response. Look at verse 16 and 17. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So many people are very moved emotionally the first time they hear the gospel. They're not like the first category. It's made an impact on them. They, Jesus said they receive it with joy. Initial joy at the hearing the word is a very good thing. So also, conversely, are tears and a sense of the danger that they're in and, and emotions on that side. That can happen too. But the problem is there's no depth to any of these emotions. They're not, they haven't really grappled with or come to grips with the fact that they are sinners under the wrath of a holy God. Not to that level. They've not understood that. They have no deep connection with the truth of the Word of God. As Jesus is saying here, they have no root system. They may see the gospel as a life enhancer, something like that, something to improve their life, make things better for them in some way. 
Not as salvation for the eternal wrath of God. So when trouble or persecution, Jesus said, comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Now that response is grievous to the evangelist that was so excited about their initial joyful reaction. Or to the missionary. Where are all those people that prayed the prayer? That kind of thing. Can't find them. What happened to them? When trouble or persecution comes, they quickly fall away. More on this one next time. Soil number three, the worldly double-minded response. Verse 18 and 19, still others like seeds sown, along the, uh, sown among the thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Now the last soil type re- represents the world smacking around the, the person who hears the word. Persecution, troubles, trials, that kind of thing. This represents the world offering Benefits, prosperity, wealth, the the positive benefits. So this person is consumed by what he might lose or what she might lose if they really follow Jesus. If you really go after Jesus, look what you just might lose. What might happen to you if you become a faithful follower of Christ? So these individuals want the comforts of money, uh, possessions, and pleasures they're anxious about money, the worries of this life. Um, they're, they're running after the deceitfulness of wealth. Perhaps like the rich young ruler trying to harmonize an inner covetousness and a love for money, money as idol, an idol, with Jesus, a love for Jesus. They're trying to put it together and harmonize. It can't be done. So this individual is a double-minded person. The world's siren call of worry and wealth, worry and wealth, worry and wealth all the time. And it crowds out the Word of God and it doesn't bear fruit. So the Word of God doesn't get the resources, the time, energy, money, resources of that person's life. Instead, they're going after the things of this world and it bears no fruit. More on this next time. And then soil number four is the eternally fruitful response. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. 30, 60, even 100 times what was sown. Friends, this is the point, the whole point of the word of God. Fruit. Fruit. It all comes down to fruit. Just like last week's sermon on blasphemy against the Spirit. Fruit. It's always about fruit. If there's fruit in your life, it means you're alive. So the whole point is, is fruit. Now, the variability of the fruit is noteworthy, noteworthy, but it's not as significant as three things. Number one, all good soil produces some fruit. Number two, all three soils produce a staggering amount, a stunning amount of fruit. And then number three, not all three produce the equal amount of fruit. There's different levels of fruitfulness. So we'll talk about all those God willing next time. Now there's a key statement that I've already highlighted, but I love this. Luke 8:15. The seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Now if I asked any of you, I'm not going to do it, but if I asked any of you, if you would say that characterizes your heart, raise your hand or stand up. If you would like to say, I believe that I have a noble and good heart, would you stand up in front of everyone here? amazing, especially since the Bible is very negative about the natural state of the human heart. It says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? 
But here's the thing. If you are a Christian, you fall under the Luke 8.15 appraisal of your heart as being a noble and good heart, but only because the Holy Spirit made it so. That's what it means that the heart of stone has been taken out. And if we say in Ezekiel's language, the heart of flesh put in, in Luke 8.15's language, a noble and good heart has been put inside you. And the proof of that noble, good heart is when you hear the word, you love it. You delight in it. You want it more, and you yearn that it would produce good fruit in your life. Where did all that come from? To God be the glory, dear Christian brother and sister. More next time. I have that written every time. More next time. So we're going to do all that next time. This is just a flyover. So the central call here must be to seek a noble and good heart. Oh God, would you give me one of those? Oh God, would you work in me a noble and good heart more than ever before? In verse 24 of this same chapter, Jesus is going to challenge us. Consider carefully what you hear. Consider carefully how you hear. Consider carefully the content of this sermon. Consider carefully your mental approach as you're sitting listening to a sermon. Consider carefully because, friend, it is the most important moment of your life. I don't mean when hearing a sermon. It's part of it. But I mean when you read the Bible. Whenever God's Word comes into you, it is the most important moment. Consider carefully what you do at that moment. And seek a noble heart from the Holy Spirit, especially to the salvation of your soul. I mean, I cry out to anybody who walked in here this morning unconverted. Do not wait yearn after this. Say, oh God, I don't want to be like that seed sown along the path or any of the other bad outcomes. I want to produce a crop in my life. So I want to ask as I close now, what soil are you? What soil are you? How would you characterize yourself? It's not prideful to say, I think I, I believe I'm a genuine Christian producing fruit. Now I want to go from 30 to 60 or from 60 to 100, but that's who I am. But to God be the glory. But in any case, this is a time, friends, for deep self-evaluation through the working of the Spirit. Close with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the power of this parable. It's powerful. And I pray that as we have a chance over this week to meditate on it, get ready to hear again details and applications and have it pressed into our hearts. Oh, Lord, get us ready. But I pray that even now, the ministry of the Word would not be fruitless in our lives. I pray that we would drink in God's word and produce more fruit than ever before. I pray for help, O Lord. We are living in a wealthy world uh, here in America. And I I worry about that third category, that, that the thorns that grow up and choke the word, making unfruitful, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth. Help us to be beware of these things so that we can bear maximum fruit for the glory of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hi, this is Andy Davis. I hope that you've enjoyed this sermon. For more of my resources, please go to twojourneys.org. And may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you as you continue to serve him.